I grew up in Columbia, Missouri, a mid-sized college town. The city itself was pretty cosmopolitan for the Midwest, but venture a few miles outside of town and there was corn. Lots and lots of corn. Corn stalks, corn rows, corn, corn, corn. I never thought much about that corn. Got close to it, touched it, nor smelled it. It was just part of the landscape, like the little ranch houses and the many Walmarts. Every summer, I'd leave Missouri and visit my grandparents in Pennsylvania. My paternal grandfather, who I called Pappy, was always dressed to work in his garden. I see him in his dirt-stained pants, red suspenders, and wide, oh my goodness, and wide-brimmed hat, smelling like pipe tobacco, earth always under his fingernails. There was certainly plenty of corn in Pappy's garden, but also butter beans and cantaloupe, beets, green beans, lima beans, and lots and lots of the sweetest watermelon this good earth has ever grown. The only carbon emission resulting from transporting this abundance of food from the farm to the farmhouse was Pappy breaking wind, which he did openly <laughs> and with a chuckle. I'm not sure where all that Missouri corn ended up, but I know where Pappy's corn went. Some of it found a home in the bellies of my grandma, my Pappy, and their guests at their green formica table. Pappy taught me to take a piece of white bread slather it with butter and salt and then wrap the buttered bread around the corn. Do you do this? Before taking a big bite, to which Pappy would explain, Oh yeah! <laughs> Part of the joy Pappy took from his garden was the sharing. Sure, he'd sell some of the produce at a little farm stand at the bottom of the hill, People would take what they want and, on an honor system, throw a couple dollars in the coffee can. But Pappy also loved to share what he grew with his children and his grandchildren. Flying back to Missouri one year, Pappy just had to give me a watermelon to take back on the plane. <laughs> Thankfully, pre-9-11. My grandma routinely put vegetables in a bag to take to families at the church who she knew didn't quite have enough. She never made it a big deal. It was just what she did. Pappy's watermelon and his corn fed me on those visits, but so did his way of being. And the way he approached the planting and the harvesting and the sharing of his garden was so different than the way we lived back home, where I spent most of my time watching game shows and sitcoms. I never wanted to leave Pennsylvania. Pappy's garden was seeded with delight and gratitude. The bounty was consumed and shared with the same delight and gratitude. As our congregation is on the verge of taking a deep dive this spring into learning about and acting on behalf of our environment, including planting a garden, I've been thinking more about gardening learning about a specific kind of gardening called permaculture. You know this term? 
So permaculture is a way of thinking about agriculture, but it's also a way of thinking about life itself. For those of you who haven't heard of it, permaculture is a term coined by two Australians, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, back in the 70s. The gist of it is engaging with the piece of earth, observing it and learning from it, honoring it, and while you're cultivating it, adhering to nature's own patterns and principles, and then tending to it so that it abundantly produces needed resources year after year in a manner that's sustaining. And the bonus is that done well, Permaculture designs require very little maintenance as the systems work together without a lot of human intervention. So a permaculture design might include perennial crops that don't require annual tilling. Edible and pollinator-friendly ground covers could be grown. Chickens might be used as tractors instead of regular tractors to clear an area of pests and weeds and provide fertilizer. A rain barrel might be serve as a double purpose of raising aquatic food, plants, or fish. Permaculture designers recognize because we humans are nature itself, we forget that we're not, we're, we're actually part of nature, that it behooves us to work with nature using nature's principles. And if we do, what we create will be stronger, more resilient, and produce more abundantly. Permaculture principles are being applied beyond agriculture to education, economics, technology, and green building. So as we as a congregation are taking stock of where we are, and each of you are set to consider your annual investment in where we are going, I thought that taking a look at some of these life-giving permaculture principles might offer us a little inspiration. There are 12 principles, but we don't have time for all of them. So I'm just going to chew on a handful, trusting that you'll be so interested you will learn more. So the first principle is observe and interact. Observation is key to permaculture. So using permaculture principles a designer first really tries to understand the land in which they're working. They want to really get to know the terrain, have the terrain speak to them, take stock of the existing resources and how they're already working together to see how they're flowing together. So for our congregation, we can employ this principle to remind us to take stock from time to time. What's the current nature of this congregation? Not a congregation of three years ago or 15 years ago, but this congregation. Who's here now? What gifts do we bring? What are we missing? We can look at the larger community in which we're nestled. We have a college nearby. How are we interacting with them? We have literally right next door, a lot of us don't realize, an exodus home which houses incarcerated women, formerly incarcerated women. Is there a way that we might be interacting with them in a way that could be beneficial to both of our communities? What opportunities for connection and engagement are organic? Given who we are and where we are in 2019, what might be possible? Observe and interact. 
Another principle is use the edges and value the marginal. So in a garden, a permaculture designer would look at the unused spaces, typically ignored, and notice what could potentially be useful for the larger system. So there's a lot going on where a field meets a forest. We've got one of those back there. And that kind of edge, though really fertile, might be overlooked by a traditional garden designer. In a congregation, similarly, there are always people who are on the edge. Maybe there are folks who just don't like to come to Sunday services, but they have a lot of gifts that we might be able to employ here. Because we skew a little older, how might we value those who are younger? How might we ensure that our visitors are valued? That our children are not outside, that they are truly valued? How are we centering whiteness to the exclusion of people of color? Catch and store energy. This principle is all about making hay while the sun shines. It's my grandma in the basement, spending days husking corn and cutting it off the cob in order to freeze it for the winter. This congregation is enjoying good times. Yay for us. Though our history is peppered with significant hardship, including serious financial hardship, we have some reserves right now. It means that we've been able to use some of that stored energy for major building repairs and future building improvements. We want to take advantage of the bounty of this time and take some needed steps to help us manage our growth, and you'll hear about that at the stewardship dinner. We also want to be wise enough to know that economies take turns, people in congregations leave and pass away. So it's finding the middle path. Integrate rather than segregate. Unlike those monoculture cornfields in Missouri, permaculture values patterns and interdependent relationships. By placing different garden elements in the right place, relationships develop between them and they support each other. Similarly, this place is only as strong as our relationships. I checked in recently with our hearth tenders, the devoted members of our congregation who regularly clean and care for our building. I asked, are you really okay with doing this? Or is this something you're just doing because it needs to be done? Really, are you feeling put upon? And the response I received was essentially, we like doing this because we do it together. We feel good about providing this service. It connects us. That doesn't mean that they don't want a quarterly deep cleaning, which is built into our budget. So, <laughs> Because caring and nourishing relationships exist between this group of special women, and connection happens in the midst of service, this vitally important work that we need done is provided for all of us. The cliches, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, and many hands make light work, as we see on our banner back there, suggest that when we work together, the jobs become easier. Sorry about the runoff. Apply self-regulation, accept feedback. 
This principle encourages permaculture practitioners to be open to what's actually happening. Maybe a rain barrel meant to collect the most rain possible is placed in the wrong location and needs to be moved. For our purposes, we need to be able to non-defensively accept feedback. Maybe visitors are coming, but they're not sticking around. What's up with that? What if we ask? To thrive, we need to be able to make needed changes quickly. And finally, obtain a yield. This permaculture principle is about being clear that we want to cultivate an abundant harvest, and we're working toward that end. Permaculture designers look at a plot of grass like we have in our backyard, and they imagine transforming it into an Edenic garden loaded with food that could feed many, many families, resulting in less reliance on grocery stores, fewer emissions, and a deep connection to the land. Over the next few weeks, I and other congregational leaders will be asking for financial support. I told the board that hired me, and I'll tell you that I will never be afraid to ask for money because I believe in this place and we need money to operate it. But the real yield we are after has nothing to do with money. Money is the means to achieve what we're after. Of all my days in 12 years and 7 months of parenting, one that I recall with great fondness is the day that I read The Secret Garden, all 200 and some pages of it, to my then four-year-old. We started in the morning under the covers, and I read. As she played, I read, replete with all the British voices. You have to do those. <laughs> as she took a bath, and as I tucked her in, I read, completely captivated by this special novel. It's the story of little Mary Lennox, who is sent to live with her uncle after she is orphaned. At the beginning of the story, Mary is obstinate and surly and alone, save for the attention of servants. And after a time, she meets her cousin, Colin Craven, who has been bedridden for ages, moping in a dark castle. Mary, Colin, and another little boy from town sneak into and begin attending to a secret garden that has been abandoned. And they slowly, slowly bring it back to life. Spending time in the garden, the children connect with each other. They connect with the earth. They spark vitality in themselves, which they then ripple out to everyone they come into contact with outside the garden. Their rough edges are smoothed. They heal. The children don't know exactly what to call the miraculous budding of seed into plant and how everything works together just so. They can't explain how they went from feeling so miserable to feeling engaged and vital. So, for lack of a better word, they call it the magic. One of the children says, magic is always pushing and drawing and making things out of nothing. Everything is made of magic, but trees and leaves, flowers and birds, 
and people. So it must be all around us, in all the places. I think so many of us humans don't know about the magic, or we've forgotten the magic. We live homogenous lives akin to that corn in those sterile Missouri cornfields, cut off from the magic. No wonder our planet is such a mess. Is it too bold to say that what we are doing here is growing and harvesting magic? I don't think so. I've seen it, and I've heard it, and I've felt it. I've seen someone who, in the throes of grief, even through tears, finding connection and purpose here. I've seen people terribly wounded from being abused in their childhood learn to trust again. And people who have always felt like misfits understand what it is to belong here. I've heard you who attend discussion groups and meditation groups share that as a result, you are living more vibrant, kinder, more intentional lives here. I have seen jaw-dropping open-heartedness and generosity among you. I've felt the weight of a giant squash planted by our children last year, and I've seen the delight our children take in being here. I've seen the way you drop what you're doing and you care for one another in times of need. And I felt the magic on those times when we join hands in a circle, feel the energy among us. I want to cultivate and share this magic right here, right where we are. But I don't want ours to be a secret garden, not at all. I want the world to, word to get out about the magic that happens here. I want everyone in the Catawba Valley who feels cut off from life, from the earth, from purpose, from community, to come here and be fed by magic. Drawing from the wisdom of nature herself, let us commit anew to growing magic here at UUCCB. In my grandfather of now blessed memories words. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
to UUCCV in 2007, 2008, because I was um, starting to do a lot of political work, and it was hard to go to political events with two or three people who shared my values. It wasn't about sharing my agreements about politics. It was really about sharing my values. And Elizabeth was like, I used to go to this UU church in Pennsylvania. And they used to change the words of the songs we sang when we were kids so they were cooler. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, well, let's go. So we both showed up with our kids. And a number of things, I mean, God, hundreds of things have happened over the last years that I've been coming here that really speak to the welcoming of this community. One of them was the fact that, you know, Elizabeth and I introduced ourselves, and we each had, we had newborns, two, newborns and toddlers at the time, and, you know, we'd been coming for several months, and I remember at some point someone just talking about, you know, what an amazing family we were, and raising our four children together, and because <laughs> neither of our husbands liked to come to church, so we were a, a very welcomed gay couple here. Um, <laughs> And I love that about this congregation. I love that there is not judgment here. There may be wrong assumptions, but there's not judgment. Um, and there is welcoming. And I don't always I don't always act politically the way I did and was inspired to do in 2007. But I still come here. I am still inspired to be a part of this community and to grow with this community. And I've been so excited to see the changes that have come. And I'm so excited to be a part of the changes that are going to come in the next years. And I feel grateful that my life is in a place of abundance where I can not only share my time, and some days it's talent, some days it's less talent, but I can also share my treasure. I'm very, very pleased to be able to provide financially to this congregation and see that so much more grows out of what I contribute than what I could ever do on my own. So I hope to see you all on Saturday night where we can perhaps continue this conversation. We traveled long we traveled long, we traveled far, to be right here, where we are, reach out a hand, no need to fear, cause all we need is right here. Oh